0: As I read through Romans 12, I can't help but think, if only Christians would actually act this way. I I can't help but think that. But the truth is, as I reflect on it, I go, I do know plenty of Christians who do act this way. The real question is, am I acting this way? So we're going to continue talking about what a real Christian character looks like as we go through Romans 12. And there's, just to recap... There's 27 character traits in Romans 12 all all the way through the end of the chapter that we've been addressing. We looked at the first eight last week, this time it's like nine all the way through 27. We're going to hammer, boom, 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 just shoot through a bunch of character traits that Christians should try to have and, and, and obey God in. These are things God's telling us to do. And um, in particular, a lot of the stuff we're dealing with tonight will deal with hardship we'll deal with how we respond to difficulty and pain, and I'll tell you what, nothing shows your true character like pain, and suffering, and hurt, and hard times, and difficult seasons of life. Everybody has great character when they're happy. <laughs> and so it's Christian character that's revealed through the trial, because the testing of your faith, you know, it, it, it's like this fire, it's like this trial that reveals what's inside and purifies. Uh, We come out of the trial not only knowing what's really going on in our hearts, but we come out more purified than we were when we went in. So, let's just dig right in. Uh, Starting in verse 12, we have character trait number nine in our list, uh, continuing from last week. Rejoicing in hope, and it goes on, number 10 and 11, Are there patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. These are three character traits that Christians want to possess. And the first one is rejoicing in hope. I think that this is, you might be like, oh yes, scripture, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Philippians 4.4, they both tell us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. So that's the command, rejoice always. This is not the same thing though, just notice the wording is different and these little, little things, like a different wording, are really profound for us as we try to understand the scripture. It says rejoicing in hope, not rejoice always. We know we're supposed to rejoice always, that's already laid out in scripture. This is telling us how we can rejoice always because we rejoice in hope It's not about how things are. It's about how things will be That's what my rejoicing is. Rejoicing is not based on my situation or my scenario It's based on how things will be in the future and that's the context of hope. Hope is about the future It's that thing that my heart is holding out for We're rejoicing for what's coming not what is That's how I can rejoice always that's the counterpoint to rejoice always. If you've been, you know, working on trying to how to rejoice always, this is it. Rejoice in hope. Psalm twenty-seven thirteen says this. I think it, it really profoundly kind of lays out this concept of rejoicing in hope. It says, I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart because of the trials he was going through, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's got this future expectation of, I will see God's goodness. I will experience these things in the future. This is a temporary trial. And that's the beautiful thing about everything we go through that's hard, is it's temporary. This is just temporary. You know, and and sometimes life, it's, it's like we have in our mind the expectation of how long our trial will last. And it's kind of like when you're doing a Windows update, you know, you're like estimated time. It's like, it's like, you know, 10 minutes. That little bar comes across to the 100% mark and then it starts over again. Wait, what's going on? You know, (laughs) and then it reboots and then it starts doing it again three more times. Like what's going on? And then sometimes our trials are like this. You feel like it's about over and then nope, it just reset. That's true. But we know that maybe unlike Windows updates, eventually it will be over. (laughs) Eventually the trial is going to end. Forgive the ridiculous analogy. So, my question for us is this. If I want to apply this into my life, that's the whole point. This isn't about me judging all the Christians in the world. You should act this way. Yes, we should act this way. As a teacher, I need to proclaim this truth. But as a Christian man, I need to apply this in my life. So, I'm thinking, how do I apply this in my life? How do I get it into my heart? The question is this. Does future glory, honestly, honestly, in your heart, in your mind, does it overpower today's griefs? Does future glory truly overpower and overcome today's griefs? And if the answer is yes, then good news, you can rejoice always, because you rejoice in hope. If the answer is no, I also have good news for you. You're, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. This is like, this is like the good news when a kid thinks there's a monster under the bed, and then the parent comes in and checks and they go, don't worry, there's no monster. And the kid's like, but I still feel like there's a monster. Well, the good news is you're wrong. Because what if you weren't wrong? (laughs) Then it would be very bad news. And the same thing, a Christian who's, who can't let the future glory, eternal perfection and glory, if that can't overwhelm temporary pains, then it's only because you're a little bit confused, you know, on this issue. You're, you're narrow-minded, you're nearsighted, you're, you've become blind on this issue, you're myopic, nearsighted, right? That's me, I'm nearsighted. And uh, sometimes spiritually, (laughs) can only see what's in front of me, or can't, actually, I'm farsighted, I forgot, I'm the other one. Can't see what's, I'm just a little tired today, can't see what's far away. Um, That's the idea of the believer who can't see the future glory, but sees the current pain. So what can you do about this? Um, I think that you can, you can get into the scriptures and read about your future hope. I mean, just, just read about these things and store it up in your heart and then thank God for it. Take a moment if you're, if you can't rejoice right now in hope, take a moment and just look into like the end of Revelation, you know, it talks about the glories of heaven or look into what Paul talks about how he's pressing onward for what? What is he pressing onward for in Philippians, you know? And read some of these passages and just, just look at it because you would lose, you'll lose heart unless you believe that you'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You'll lose heart too. So rejoicing in hope. Let's look at the next one. Patient, in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Um, I think that these are connected, right? Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, steadfast in prayer. These are, these are all connected to difficult times. So I'm patient in tribulation. Now tribulation, you might be thinking the great tribulation, that three and a half year period that Jesus talks about. um, That is not what's in mind here, although it would apply there as well if someone was going through that. But the word tribulation is just a generic term. It doesn't say rejoicing in or patient in the great tribulation, it just says patient in tribulation, which just simply means trouble, distress, hard circumstances, suffering. It's a purposely generic term. It's not just persecution. It's any suffering a believer faces. I like that. I find that comforting because it tells me that I can rejoice, I can be patient, and this applies to whatever random thing I'm facing today. You know, you've got this foot problem that just won't Go away. It's irritating. It's driving you nuts and you can be patient. That's also tribulation or the death of a loved one. That's a different kind of tribulation, but it still applies. So here's a question for you. I'm going to take a pot shot at prosperity preaching for a second, which I like to do um, because it's wrong. (laughs) Why is it, why is it that so much of the New Testament is about dealing with pain instead of dealing with prosperity? Why, why do I even have verses like this so frequently throughout the New Testament? Very few of them are about dealing with prosperity and riches. In fact, some of the richest verses are things like, warn those who desire to be rich in this age. They heap many troubles upon themselves. Like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the stuff I heard on that one TV show. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't sound like the stuff that I heard on the prosperity preaching. That doesn't sound like what I saw when I watched those preachers dancing on money that one time on that video on YouTube. Like <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I saw that. My goodness. I I think that there's a a relatively few number of actual verses that deal with handling prosperity. They're there. They do exist. So we're not expecting poverty necessarily as Christians, nor are we expecting prosperity. Um, We're expecting life to involve troubles. That's for sure. Um, In this life, you will have prosperity. No. Tribulation. Those are the words of Jesus. You will have tribulation. So... I think the word for us to be patient in tribulation is, is to get ready for it now. Now, how many of you guys are in disaster preparedness, like you're ready for the next earthquake? We live in California. This is the land of of earthquakes, of course, right? We haven't had like a really serious earthquake in a long time, and that kind of makes us a little worried, you know? Like Northridge? That was a while back. Some of us remember that. I remember that. I was in elementary school, you know, but, but (laughs) you weren't alive yet, yes. So, are you ready for the next earthquake? What do you do to get ready, right? Like you stockpile water, you know, you get, you get a bunch of DVDs and a generator for your TV, you, you do what's important in life, and you get yourself ready for these different things. But I think in the same sense, when, when disasters hit in life, like life tribulation hits, the question isn't what are you gonna do now? The question is, what have you done to prepare yourself for now? Now, being a pastor, I show up at a funeral, I show up even at a hospital call, I show up at, at, at events and times when people's lives are really, really hard. And I I mean I want to bring help and I want to bring comfort and I want to try to you know aid in very real ways and very honest ways as much as possible. But I've found that people tend to follow fall in my mind into two categories: those who are already prepared for this, and those who are very hard to help through it. Because There is no preparedness for the disaster. So why, when you are not in tribulation, does scripture say, be patient in tribulation, so you can get ready. Get your heart ready for pain. Don't, instead of thinking, it will never happen to me, how about you think, what if it happens to me? Lord, will I trust you? And settle your heart on trusting God, if that horrible thing happens. Settle your heart on resting in God and having peace in God. And I think this will really help with phobias and stress and nervousness and the anxieties that carry on to us when we can say, Lord, I'll still trust you even in that. You prepare yourself for it. And what is your job uh, during the trial? It says it right there. Patient in tribulation. Like that's your, that's your whole job. Your whole task in trials is be patient. This is wonderful to me. Um, but let me explain because patience in scripture is a particular kind of waiting It's not like the waiting you do at the DMV, right? This isn't <laughs> the waiting where you tap your foot and you're frustrated and you're irritated This isn't the waiting of someone who's got a road rage and they're in traffic and they're waiting, but they're not patient No, patience is a particular kind of waiting It's a faithful waiting because with tribulation comes temptation and this I found true in my life And I found it true in other believers lives as well. They've shared it with me Um, The reality is when I face hard times in life, that's the time when temptation comes on even stronger in my life and the sins that my flesh is prone to become much louder and the temptation to, to just, you know what, forget it and just go for this thing and do this wicked thing that perhaps I've been dying to self in and now I'm thinking, what's the point? Notice this is, this is when Satan came to tempt Jesus. was when he was in the wilderness. When he was out, he was alone. He was away from family, friends, all that kind of stuff. And he sort of positive, um, you know, reinforcements. He was uh, hungry. He had fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. Satan comes and tempts him at that moment. And I think that he comes in particular moments, whether it's Satan himself, probably doesn't, you know, care much about me personally. But he comes... To attack us or and, and your flesh rise, rises up, demonic attack, whatever it is, it comes at times of tribulation. So this is why I have to be patient in tribulation. Also, there is a temptation not just to sin, but there seems there is a temptation to doubt or to fear. And that that can be a real battle. Now, I, I do not want someone to feel like they are blowing it because they simply have an emotion of doubt or have an emotion of fear. I think that that is just part of the trial. I do not think that that is anything that anyone needs to, be, needs to be ashamed of or feel bad about. But just know that, that will come at the time of tribulation. So that's where you got to be patient. And you got to say, Lord, I'm going to stick with you, I'm going to wait with you through this trial, through this time. Uh, The book of Job is a good example of this. It was a, it was a long trial, it was a hard trial, but it was a temporary thing. And it was about trusting God through it. And the book of Psalms carries this all the time. All the time, he exposes the trial he's in, he talks about how it's causing him to have struggles and fears and things like this, yet he chooses to trust God. So there's that wait on the Lord. He will strengthen your heart. Why? Why is this so hard though? Um, I think there is an element of this, in my in my personal opinion, where this kind of patience in tribulation becomes difficult because it requires us to accept a certain degree of suffering and pain in our lives and it just accept it. That is the kind of patience. But I really want this thing to be fixed. But my, like, refusing to accept anything other than god fix this is causing me to be very frustrated very upset and very unsettled but there can be a time where you go lord i don't know how long this is for because everything's temporary in life right but i but i will be patient and i'll endure through this thing i don't know how long it'll last but lord i'll accept the situation as it is i'll be content with such things as i have I think that that's a tough thing, but I think it's a very liberating thing when you can say that. Notice this though, you're only accepting it as a season, but but sometimes we're delivered not from a trial, we're delivered through it. Sometimes we go through the middle of it, into the fire, and then we come out the other end and there we are, refined. Yeah, but it wasn't fun, (laughs) it wasn't easy, but sometimes that's the greatest equipping of our lives. So, are you applying this to your life? Are you waiting patiently? Not are you waiting. Are you waiting patiently in your trials, in the, in, the, in the particular things you're struggling through, going through? They are not without purpose. God's working all things together for good. He's making you more into his image. He's changing your life. So, you can actively seek to change these things. You can try to make it better and all that, but there's a sense of pa- peaceful patience in the heart of the believer. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four says this, Wait on the Lord and keep his way. Notice this. This is like a perfect description of what it means to be patient. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, his path, his lifestyle that he's called you to live. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. So then we get to the third one here. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. And I can't help but have to ask this and ask this of myself and you is how is your prayer life? Consider this. Like, how how really, how is your prayer life going? Um, Is there just a genuine, personal prayer life between you and the Lord that's continuing to go on in your life? There's a lot of examples of prayers in the Bible. It's not just requests. So we have, we have requests. Obviously, there's requests in the Bible, but there's also other stuff, like what Psalm says when it says, pour out your heart, that verse behind me on the wall there, pour out your heart. is telling us to pour our hearts out to God. That's a type of prayer. This is, this should be in my prayer life where I just, but I just dump out what's going on in my heart to the Lord, not ir- irreverently. And not, I, I some people, they, I actually heard pastors advocate like yelling at God or accusing God and go ahead and be mad at God. You won't hurt his feelings. And I'm like, that's really stupid. Like, you don't, don't tempt the Lord. <laughs> like, that's all I'm saying is you, you quote no verses, I'll quote Jesus here. Don't tempt the Lord and, and do this. This is not healthy for anyone to shake their fist at the Lord. Pouring out my heart isn't, isn't expressing anger at God, but it certainly is dumping out the yuck that I'm feeling about life and about what's going on, but I'm doing it in a a way where I respect and and submit to the Lord. Psalms is a fantastic example of this. If you look carefully at the way he does it and not just use it as an excuse, which some people do, but most of us, we don't want to do that, right? Also, there's confession. Confession is a type of prayer. We actually have examples of this in scripture, like uh, uh, Daniel how he went to the priest and confessed, oh no wait, he just went straight to the Lord. That's right. And you went, to, <laughs> he used to go straight to God and you confess what's going on and you, you failed and you've made some sort of error. Please clear this up with the Lord. Actually open your mouth. Don't just say, I'll just not think about it and not talk about it. and just keep. Instead, take the issue, bring it to the Lord. This is a healthy prayer life where I bring it to the Lord as frequently as I need to. Um, also just processing life. The Psalms has examples of this too. Or it's literally just going, this is what's happening. This is what's happening, Lord. This is what's happening. And the psalmist is sort of processing life and then comes out with more clarity on on the end of that processing experience. I think that's interesting. Um, So I think prayer can carry you through the day. We we learn from scripture to pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing, just to be like sort of a continual attitude of prayer and just immediately going to God. But also we get results of prayer. Philippians talks about peace that I can have because of prayer. Prayer. Peace in my heart because of prayer. If I pray the right way. So here's the formula it's no secret. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Don't forget that part. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So prayer imparting peace. Um, I think that's pretty powerful. But let me say this prayer is not just therapeutic. Yes, prayer helps my heart. Yes, prayer brings me closer to God. Yes, prayer helps me process the things I'm going through. Yes, it even helps me with peace and things like that. But God answers prayer. I mean, this is this is the thing. It's not just like a therapeutic. There are people who are non-believers or like pseudo-Christians who advocate prayer purely for its therapeutic value, right? It's like talking to a psychiatrist. Like, oh, it seems to help. Go ahead and pray. And I'm like, Like it's a placebo effect, you know, like it's this fake thing that we do as Christians. But God answers prayer. And so for this reason, you got to wonder if you're prayerless, why? (laughs) And is there a chance that this is some kind of serious spiritual thing that's going on in your life? And restoring praying, praying in your life is really, really important. Like it says, continuing steadfastly in prayer, which is like, I'm going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. I'm going to continue steadfastly in prayer. So, I think all three of these are exampled uh, really well in Psalms. So, I'm going to read to you one example. Psalm 13. In fact, please turn there. Psalm 13 gives us, I think, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer all in one Psalm. So, we could see like a real example of these things being played out um, in in, uh, Holy Scripture. So, Psalm 13, it says, To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me. O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I'm moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully to me. And let me show you where I see these things. I see rejoicing in hope two times. I see it in verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6 is rejoicing in hope. He says, I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He's dealt bountifully with me. I see pa- patience in tribulation in verse 5. But I have what? trusted in your mercy this is this is the attitude of someone who's who's like they think i'm going to be moved which means i'm going to like leave my faith i'm going to depart from my dependence upon god and his answer is but i have trusted in your mercy like that that commitment i made to god it holds today too that's my patience in tribulation and then uh, finally continuing steadfastly in prayer is seen what verses do you think we see that in i will be verses 1 through (laughs) 6 and follow when you see these Psalms where you especially here's like a key for Psalms when you see where David's complaining or whoever the, the author of the Psalm happens to be where you're at and they're complaining about things don't just take the complaining verse out of context and try to like interpret it by itself take the whole Psalm and realize we're being taught some beautiful things through the entire Psalm he complains how long Lord he's counting on God he's waiting on God he's in tribulation yet where does he end but I'm waiting on you, I'm trusting in you, I believe in you, I'm rejoicing in you. Sorrow and rejoicing at the same time, at the same time. Uh, interesting stuff, interesting stuff. Turns out um, the Bible really meets us where we're at. So let's uh, continue over in chapter 12 of Romans here, verse 13. It gives us two more of these character traits, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. These are connected as well, these are connected, it's good that they're joined together here. Um, the needs of the saints. Let me just say this. Distributing to needs means people need something and you of your own financial ability, you take care of that need. That That's what it means. This is not just meeting needs like emotional needs. That's why it uses the word distributing. So it really means like that person needs a car. We don't really, I'm going to give them a car. Or that person needs rent. I'm going to pay their rent. That person needs food. I'm going to buy them food, get them clothes, you know, whatever it is. Like get them, you know, a, a Minecraft account so they can play for themselves. It's distributing to the need, the real needs of the saints here. But notice this, it's about the saints. It's about the saints. I actually see this consistently in scripture, in the New Testament. We're to help everybody, right? We're to help the the Samaritan, so to speak, or be the Samaritan and help the, uh, the, uh, uh, just the random guy that got beat up and left left for dead on the side of the road. We're, We're to help the random people of life. So it's not like we only help Christians, but... But there's a sense in which our provision and our help for people leans towards believers because they're part of our family. Now, we invite everyone to be part of our family. But when we see the cup of cold water be given to the least of his disciples, not just to anybody. And so I think sometimes ministries, they almost prioritize giving to non-believers and leaving believers out of the mix because it's meant to be outreach. But giving isn't exactly outreach. Giving is giving. And so my thought is that we should consider this when we look around our church and we see saints in need, we see believers who are, who are hurting and needful financially, and we should take out of our own pockets and we should help provide for our fellow believers. Now, some pastors, they'll take every verse in the Bible that mentions giving and they make it about giving in the church when the, when like the bucket is passed around or, or whatever. That's, now I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I think actually it's very appropriate to give to your local fellowship. We should do that. But that's not what this verse is about. So let's just be clear. Let's let the text be the text, right? It says distributing to the needs of the saints. This is just telling Christians to just give to other Christians. Now it's possible that your church has like a benevolence fund where they take care of believers who are in need, in which case when you give to the church, you you can accomplish this task. So maybe you do give to the church to accomplish the same thing. But I think what's even better than that is you've got a lot of eyes in the congregation. And when all these eyes are looking out and when they see needs, They try to meet needs. That's going to accomplish way more than just giving money to the church and we try to find needs occasionally because you know these people and you can follow up with them. You know if it's real or if it's fake because I'll tell you what, we get calls all the time in our church. Every week we get calls, random people. You guys are a good church. I know you're a great church. You love the Lord. I love the Lord too. Can you pay my rent? I'm sorry, you're not a part of our, we don't know who you are. Every week we get these calls and so we don't, we pretty much always say no. We do not know who you are. We are not just going to pay your rent. I thought you were Christians and you are terrible people. And then and they cuss us out and hang up the phone, right? And then they call the next church because I guarantee they are sitting in front of a list of churches and they are just going down the list. I actually went once to a family who called for help. And um, they asked me for money. And then as I was on my way, I prayed, prayed for them spent time with them and stuff. But, I don't have a lot of money, so I didn't have much to give them, and I felt a little sketchy about it. On my way out of the house, I looked over and saw a list of churches and a list of people that were calling one at a time to ask for money, and um, yeah, so good thing we're not stupid. Um, <laughs> dumb enough to just fall for any old scam. Um, no, we want to distribute to actual needs. On the other hand, our church has paid rent many times. Many times you pay rent. We sponsor kids to go to camp. We try to take care of people that have needs. We pay to get that lady's car fixed, especially if it's like a single mother or if it's, uh, you know, families in need. We we do that all the time, but we know these people. They're not just random strangers. They're the saints that we know, and that's the difference. So, I think a lot of examples in the New Testament of giving are actually believers helping out less fortunate believers. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, if you're familiar with this passage, I won't go over it, but let me just say this. This is commonly quoted and the application is giving in your church to the church. But the application of 2nd Corinthians 8 and 9 is about believers who have more money giving money to believers who have less money. Not just communism. This isn't about, this isn't about politics at all. What's going on here is there's a, there's a group of believers in Jerusalem who are in poverty probably because of persecution. They have no money. They don't have enough money for their basic needs is the idea. And yet the Corinthians they're they're well enough off that they have the ability to share, and the money's being taken to a whole different city and just given to not the not like an organizational church structure. It's just given to the people to help them out. Now we do know there was like a an apostolic kind of like uh, guidance to you know like Stephen. He was one of the stewards in Acts chapter seven. He's like helping distribute to the needs of the widows and things like that. So there is the church is involved in the process, but the church here is sending money outside of their whole city. It's not about tithing, okay? That's what it's about. So this is why I think it should be on our radar. This is not a message about tithing. I'll, one day I'll do something on tithing. This is not this message. This is saying, me as a Christian, if I have the ability, if I, and, and try to carve into your budget some giving money, that's not meant for the church, it's meant for the saints, right? It's not meant for the organization of the church, it's meant for the, the, the actual people, the church church. And when you see needs, meet needs. And if you don't have these funds, if you don't have this ability, then don't. You're not meant to starve yourself to feed another in this situation. That's not the, read Second Corinthians verses 8 and 9 if you want more details on that. So we can do this through the church or we can really probably do it through each other, just one-on-one because I can see needs and I can follow up and, and that's, I don't know, that's more exciting to me. It's just more organic. Um, and that's when it says, given to hospitality, next. Given to hospitality. Um, the question is this: Not are you hospitable? Do you, you take people in, take care of them, that kind of thing? The question is: Are you given to hospitality? Is it like I will lean towards using what I have to take care of others, or is it like you're given to the opposite? Like no, you know, like you grew up with too many older siblings, and you don't want, you don't want to share with anybody, that kind of thing. Um, hospitality back then was a in the context of first the first century, it was really a lot about people coming and visiting and actually staying in your home there was no hotel for them to stay out they had to find believers homes to stay in so that was the hospitality but the principle I think applies for us to just say I'm given I'm inclined to try to take care of others to try to bless them like, but it, but a good question is this like if, if it's been 10 years since you had anybody over to your house for a meal then maybe you should try doing that sometime soon even if it means you have to clean the house <laughs> All right, verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Who is it that I'm blessing here? Those who persecute. The word is pursue and harass. Now, they could be persecuting you for religious purposes, but it doesn't say persecute you for the name of Jesus. It just says persecute. Maybe they just don't like your face. Right? And these people harass you, that was like my entire childhood, like in, in, in junior high, pretty much, right? there. There's nobody like my face, not even me, right? And so, like every junior higher, and, um, and so you get persecuted, you get harassed, and you're called to do what? To bless. This just flips it. As a believer, I'm called to bless them, not, not only not curse them, bless and do not curse, but just bless. And I can't even be like, Lord, I just pray you bless them. And as I'm leaving, I'm like, I hope they fall on, on a bag of marbles and bang their nose or something like horrible like that. It's the worst thing I can think of because I'm such a wonderful person. Um, but bless and do not and do not curse at all. Now, I think God means this. And so here's what I want to think. Is somebody harassing you in this world right now? Is someone just like, God, is getting on my nerves. Bless them every time you feel frustrated about them. Fantastic way to apply the scripture. And notice this is not pray about them. You can pray about them. That's fine. Lord, help me with this person. They're really frustrating me. That's a good prayer. But bless them is different. It goes like this. Lord, I pray you'd bless them. How's that feel saying that out loud? (laughs) Well, it'll work on your heart while it also shows the heart of Christ to that person. Um, And it will, it will change your heart. I have personally put this into practice in my own life and um, uh, there was someone who I was feeling really, really frustrated with and I felt like they were backstabbing me on purpose and undermining my reputation and actually attacking me behind my back to people um, who I care about and love. And so every time, and it was really bugging me. Sometimes, usually forgiveness is pretty easy for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's because I haven't been wounded enough. (laughs) But, but in this case, I was having a really hard time. And so, I was thinking of the scripture. So I just started praying that God would bless them every time I felt frustration in my heart. And it really, unexpectedly, it did a real work in my heart and it changed me. Changed my attitude towards them. And I was doing it out of obedience. I meant it, but I was doing it out of obedience. But after a while, I was just like, I don't know. Like I had a new heart of compassion for that individual, even though they were causing me pain or at least my perception of it was. Man, I just wanted to bless them and um, still do. And so... Let's do this. Let's actually do this, right? All right. Let's look at the next uh, character trait for Christians. Rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15, and weep with those who weep. All right. Look at this is uh, the 16th and 17th character trait of our series here. And I think connecting this to verse 14, after it says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, it seems to be saying, instead of focusing on your hurt, focus on what's going on with the other person in life. You feel hurt. How about you bless them instead of curse them? And it's about them instead of you. Um, Someone is rejoicing. How about you rejoice with them? Someone's weeping. How about you weep with them? So the question here is, and this is more kind of a modern thing. There's a lot of information on the web about emotional intelligence and things like that and empathy. But this is a biblical concept. This doesn't come from YouTube the last 20 minutes, right? This is a biblical concept. I need to respond to other people's emotions in an empathetic way. That's a biblical calling on a a Jesus-like character for a Christian. So here's the question. Apply this to your life. How do you respond to people's emotions? Do you redirect? When someone comes and they have either joy or weeping, do I redirect? They're like, oh man, my my back hurts so bad. It's it's been really hard. And they're like, oh, I know what you mean by my back hurts really bad. And I redirect. It's about me now. (laughs) Is that what's going on? Do I always find myself going to others to gripe and complain but not sort of pulling out of them the things that are going on in their life a little bit? Not manipulative, just kind of trying to share with them and what they're going through. So do you redirect? Here's another option. Do you avoid? Someone comes to you and they're weeping and they're like, I've never been through so much hardship in my life. Oh, life's hard. And you're like, I'm very uncomfortable now. (laughs) And you're just like, I'm out of here. At the quickest opportunity, I'm gone, you know? And like, let someone else, let my wife talk to that person and not me. Is that, is that my attitude? Or, do I respond by tweaking and fixing, meaning that I immediately drop into short, curt advice mode, instead of weeping or rejoicing with the person? Now, you can try to help people, and that's good. But, if my help is to disguise the fact that I do not rejoice with you and I do not weep with you, then I want to change that in my life. Fixing, when people are crying, trying to fix them can be harmful. And I have a proverb for this. Proverbs chapter 25, 20, it says, like one who takes away a garment in a, in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. When This is biblical here, right? When someone has a heavy heart and I'm like, oh, cheer up. I just want to fix you. Make you, oh, hey, I have a sunshiny day. Let's all cheer up. It's as though I'm taking away their blanket in the cold. Why? Because sorrow is a way in which we deal with the suffering we're going through. Sorrow is not necessarily bad. We sorrow. We just don't sorrow like we have no hope. But we do sorrow and that's entirely healthy. So if I try to stop you from sorrowing, It's as though I'm taking away your comfort. Scripture says, no, how about I put on some sorrow too? Because I can sort of feel some of your pain. How about when you're having joy? How about I put on some joy too? So I can sort of feel some of that joy. And you can minister to people more by crying with them or laughing with them sometimes than by giving them the the advice that you think will quick fix their situation. And we've all been there, right? We've all heard the quick fix advice that makes us not want to talk to that person when you have trouble anymore. I think we've all heard that. Let's not be that. Not to criticize them, not to point them out. It's just to like learn from my own walk with Jesus. I want to, I want to do this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. As a Christian, as a pastor, who's gone through like classes in the school ministry on like pastoral counseling, um, this was an issue that I struggled with because I started to feel like some of even the training we received in in the school was making us like doctors. You know how doctors are? They call you patient. Bed number four is that's my identity now I'm bed number four and the doctors do this sometimes to protect their own hearts because you're, they have to deal with a lot of hurting people. But I'm like as a pastor, I don't think I can do that. Like I think I can't even allow myself to start doing that. Like if someone's hurting, I want to feel some of that hurt. I, now I, what I need to do is learn how to let it go as I leave that conversation. that's the trick learning that but don't guard your heart from their pain. this is how you minister and uh, the scripture tells us to do it. remember when Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus when he goes to the funeral and pastors always say, why was he why did he cry? He knew he was about to raise Lazarus Lazarus. I think he was weeping with those who weep. I think he was just doing this. Um, okay verse 16. Be be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. All admonitions related to humility. So, be of the same mind. Um, This is interesting. I am not entirely sure of all the aspects of being of the same mind. Maybe the idea is this connects to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind. There is definitely a connection there. I am carrying the same mind as you. But obviously, as Christians, I want to be of the same mind in a spiritually edifying sense. So seek to be spiritually unified with people. um, But then it goes on. Don't set your, your, your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. What is a mind that's set on high things? I think a mind that's set on high things is the mind that wants fame, glory, celebrity status. You want to go viral. You want to be cool. That's a mind that's set on high things. And what it does is it alienates people and it keeps us from ministering to them. Because if you think you're cool, all you're really doing is walking around telling everyone else you think they're lame. There's an idea that some people are more important than others. And we, in, we, we inherit this idea from the world around us. Like even, even in ministry, it's like, oh, but that's the pastor, so that's, he's more important. Like, how Christian is that? Like, Really? It's weird. There's an authority, maybe that's there a, a, to a degree, to a, a biblical degree, <laughs> but not not this sense of importance and um, like levels of Christianity or some garbage like that. Rather, Jesus flips this stuff, and he's like, "Oh, you want to be great? Be the servant of all." and, and completely flips it upside down. So the truth is that when those have a a mind set on high things and celebrity status and you like the idea of rubbing elbows with certain groups of people and even pastors can get this way where they just won't spend time with the lesser Christians of the congregation. And, um, uh, and and I'm like again, I don't want us to turn into critics of others. I just want us to see examples in life so we can go, okay, where is that in me? Where is that in my life? I don't want to do that. So associate with the humble, that's the solution. Associate with the humble instead of thinking highly Associate with the humble. Make the humble your friends because you will become like your friends. So if you know arrogant people, don't hang out with them. You know, humble people, hang out with them, hang out with them and you'll become more like them. Associate with the humble. I like that. Be wise, but do not be wise in your own opinion. That's an interesting concept. Don't be wise in your own opinion. I mean you are always open to correction because faith in God is not the same as faith in all of my intuitions about God. Faith is not the Christian who thinks they are right about everything they feel. That is wise in your own opinion. Faith is trusting in God and who he is. Now if you have not taken it yet, I do encourage you to go online and take the stupidity test that I put out <laughs> <laughs> earlier this week online. It is called Take This Stupidity Test, that is the title of the video. I encourage you to do this because it's about this being wise in your own opinion and it's kind of a fun way of actually trying to target what might be a real issue and hopefully bless you and and guide you towards the Lord in that. So um, Yeah, the truth is other people might think I'm wise but nobody knows my folly like I do Now one of the jobs of my mouth is to make sure that you know my wisdom and not my folly. But the job of my mind, not think more highly of myself than I am is to know that I know my folly still. And so I stay humble. Don't be wise in my own opinion. (coughs) All right, if that wasn't hard enough, now it's going to get hard. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. No one. Repay no one evil for evil. It's the blanket statement upon all people, and that means even the worst person in your life, do not repay them evil for evil. Don't do, you hurt me, I hurt you. And it is time, believer, if you struggle with road rage, or game rage, or any version of rage, you got to deal with it, because what it is, is you're trying to, you're, you're, you're just expressing your evil out there. Don't repay evil for evil to anyone. Justice is a good thing. It's a thing for the courts, but as a Christian, we have to remember what James says. It says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. My wrath, it's not going to result in God's righteousness. Why? Because it's man's wrath. I'm going to do it wrong. So God, your job is justice, but I am going to deal with mercy, just as I've been given mercy. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. I think this is a really interesting phrase and I'm going to share with you what I think it's talking about. I think it's talking about maintaining godly character at all times in front of all people, even those who are evil. Because how often do we feel like we can lower our Christian standards because we're in front of wicked people? Oh, I'm still above them. But that's not the calling. You're to maintain godly character at all times or do you flip a switch? Does personal character become a secondary thing when you're not in front of people who expect it of you? I've learned uh, in our domestic violence counseling program, which I did for years, just meeting with guys who were convicted of domestic violence and trying to help them to see what was going on and help lead them to transformation and change through Christ. That was the preference. Um, And we did preach. I did preach Christ in in that program. That was kind of the coolest part about it. But I learned in that program that everyone has their angry face, and you've got guys in there that you'd be like, this, he's a good guy, man, I like him, he's, he's, I don't know why, he's a, the judge made a mistake until you called his wife, and she told you what was going on behind the scenes, and you were like, you have an angry face, don't you? You have an angry face, and I do too, and one of my jobs is to make sure that you never see it. That I never lose that control of the Holy Spirit in my life. I never unleash the beast within. And he's there. Right? But that's my fallen nature. So I'm to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Proverbs 25:28 says this profound thing. It says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So me having self-control over my own spirit. It's like the walls of a city. You know what the walls of a city did back then? They protected them from invaders. But if a city was broken down and had no walls, anybody could invade at any moment. They didn't even need a big army. They could just sneak in and just steal things. And the guy that doesn't, or woman who does not have self-control over their anger and their frustration, here's the danger. You're constantly having thieves come in and steal from you. Like your life is constantly having these little moments where things are being robbed from you because of the anger, because of the rage. So if this is you, Just make a point of of praying about this and seeking the Lord on this and seeking to grow in this area. The goal is never get discouraged um, because a godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to just despair the scripture says. So we don't want to be in a place of despair. But part of the key is don't use other people's evil to excuse your evil. And that's a huge biblical principle. Never let someone else's evil be the excuse for yours. That's why you repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good in the sight of all men. In fact, this is required for church leadership. They're required that they have a good testimony among the unbelievers. That's an interesting requirement, isn't it? I wonder how many churches are doing that. We should do that. We should consider this. Like, what's your testimony amongst unbelievers? Maybe before I bring you into this ministry, I like contact your co-workers. So is he a Christian in front of you guys? Oh, pff, he's a Christian? I didn't know you know, then not fit for leadership. Um, verse 18, it says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And here, the requirement is pretty intense, actually. As much as depends on you, in recovery programs, they have a phrase they use. Keep your side of the street clean, they say. And they're just trying to get people to stop obsessing about what other people do and just do your own thing. When I worked at In-N-Out, there was a phrase they used to yell at me occasionally when I found myself moving away from my station to help somebody else with their job. I should have been cutting fries, you know. Fresh potatoes, <laughs> No, I was so fast at that. There was one time I smashed my thumb into the grid, and anyway, I um, still have the scars. But um, but if I found myself over there helping the guy in the salad bar, helping the person get their drive-through orders out, or in the back doing onions, my uh, my manager would yell at me, "Hey, Spartacus!" He called me Spartacus for some reason. <laughs> and, uh, hey, Spartacus! Know your role. And that's what Tony would yell at us all the time. Know your role. Know your role. And I I remember learning this principle and I kind of got it into my blood a bit and I and I realized how much it's kind of a biblical idea. Isn't that what it's saying? Know your role. Your role live peaceably with all as much as it depends on you. That's your role. Does this mean everyone will be at peace with you? No. It's (laughs) if it is possible. It may not be possible, but as much as it depends on You, my role, so that is the point. It is wonderfully liberating to just know your role. So who are you not living peaceably with? Think of them in your life. Imagine these people. Is there anyone you are not living peaceably with? Be open to a face or a name that might come to you as you are considering these things and then ask this. Are you doing everything in your power that does depend on you? Not things that are not even about you or do not depend on you. Just the stuff that depends on you. Are you doing all those things? If not, know your role know your role and if it's not possible then you have verses 19 and 20 so let's follow up with what about when I do everything I can and I cannot live peaceably with this person they're just such poop faces it's not gonna work verse 19 it says beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord now that is a claim and a promise God says vengeance is mine it belongs to me I claim that You don't get to do vengeance. I do vengeance. Then he has a promise, and I will repay. This is a heavy verse. God's like, I'm going to deal with it. They're not going to get away with it. If they don't come to me and deal with it through Jesus, I will deal with them. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do I really even need to explain that verse? Isn't it obvious? Okay, this is kind of complicated. There's several theories about what this means. So I'm obviously blessing my hungry, I'm, uh, my my hungry enemy. I give him food. My thirsty enemy, I give him something to drink. I bless them. I don't take advantage of their hurt. I minister to their hurt, right, or their need. I do that. But what is this coals of fire thing? Um, let me give you a few of the options, okay? This is what people say. They say, well, this comes back to Proverbs. Proverbs mentioned this. And in the section of Proverbs, there's a lot of these Egyptian sort of phrases in there that relate to Egypt as well. So we think maybe there's this Egyptian thing where heaping coals of fire was like heaping shame on somebody. It didn't literally mean you put coals of fire upon them, but it meant you shamed them. And there's, okay, it's possible that this is what it means. Um, I maybe because I'm so removed from that culture. I have a hard time swallowing that personally um, There's another possibility they say well back then and you get this I'm gonna sh- give you the short version of the story because the pastor was going for 20 minutes about the about how people would dig pits and Have coals in them and stuff like that And I'm I'm just like bored when all that but so here You've got people with coals of fire and they're in a campground where p- other people need fire too and so I come over with my little container for the fire and you put coals in and I hold it up over my head and I walk back to my area and I start my own fire. So heaping coals of fire on my head is a blessing. And I'm going, pretty clever, but that sounds kind of like it doesn't fit the text at all to me. Um, And I'll I'll show you why. What does the rest of the context say? God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Then he says, so your part, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. God's bringing vengeance and wrath back into the mix here. And he is going to repay. And as Christians, because we know the grace of Christ, we, we shouldn't forget its grace. And that there is wrath that's deserved and earned. And those who reject it and reject it and reject it while we bless and bless and bless, it's like coals of fire. It's like more wrath being poured upon them. So God will deal with them. But that makes me pray for them more. God, I want them to be blessed. I want them to be helped. I want you to get them out of this. I think personally, and I could be wrong, but I think that this is talking about more judgment upon the person. Because the believer blessed while they continued to curse. And so that's more wrath upon them. Now, it's possible that it could be this whole idea of shame. Um, but in the same sense, then it's, not, don't call that a blessing. I'm heaping shame upon them, so that's still not a blessing. This isn't a nice thing, but hopefully they'll be ashamed of their behavior when they see my good behavior. That's another possible interpretation. My personal view is that the the whole sharing of the coals on top of the head and it's a kindness, that doesn't, I don't think, fit the context. And I think it's people just being uncomfortable with the teaching of the passage, um, in my opinion. So keep on doing good. And if they don't respond, God will deal with it. That's the point. That is the point. Now, why, God, if you are going to deal with them, why do I have to keep doing good? Because of verse 21, the final verse, the last character trait, it says, do not become over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a constant issue for us. When people hurt me, it grabs hold of my sin nature and I want to react in the flesh and then I am overcome by evil. When I respond to evil with evil, I am overcome by evil. When I respond to evil with good, I overcome evil with good. Know your role. Know your role. A wound is a temptation. A hurt is a possible opening for me to assassinate my own character. And I want to walk godly before Christ. And I want to, br- I want to bring a blessing upon them. Jesus, even at his crucifixion, because of his behavior, because of his actions, caused one of the centurions there to say, truly, this is the Son of God. And if my actions, when I'm being attacked and persecuted, might be evangelize somebody, might show the truth of Christ to them, that's so great. So, um, knowing that flesh hooks flesh, that their sin tends to hook me into my sin... That's why I don't want to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So forgive, bless, be gracious, seek to get along. Your job is not to fix the situation. Your job is to obey Christ in the situation. This is Christian character. Christian character doesn't change anyone else as much as it changes the Christian who's doing the Christian character. And that's the point, getting that, getting the expectations of behavior off of others and onto myself and honoring Christ with my life and knowing my role that's kind of all of this stuff, I think, summarized as I do these things. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, some of us have um, uh, true enemies. Those who've, who've wounded us, hurt us really, seriously, deeply. We pray, Lord, for those who maybe here that are feeling that way, that are feeling old grudges. Um, anybody who maybe will listen online, we lift them up even right now, God, and we pray that you'd help them through this. Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus and his eyes of mercy towards them. Help them to work through this and to grow in this and to become more and more gracious and more forgiving, knowing that yet you still will deal with it. Vengeance is yours. You'll repay. But our job is to let it go. And so, Lord, we pray for patience and wisdom. We pray that we would live godly Christian lives. We pray that we would live lives that would make it so that other people have a hard time saying anything bad about Christianity because they know one of us. And we've lived a godly and loving and truthful and Christ-like life in front of them. In Jesus' name, amen.